HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes.
Welcome to Snacky Tunes. We are here with Farley Elliott, food writer, senior editor, LA Eater. Welcome, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so you grew up probably the farthest one could from LA, which is on a lumber. Well, you're son of, son of lumberjacks. Sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Lumberjacks yeah. in northern New York near the Canadian border. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So diagonal from here. Basically about as far away as you can get. Um, I, I believe it was referred to as due east. Due <laughs> east and well north. Yeah. Uh, yeah, my family business is like cutting down trees and raising parts of forests so that somebody can build a highway and all that sorts of stuff. I was the first person in my family to go to college and I moved to the West Coast at like 20 and sort of transferred to go to school. Um, what was it like? I mean, you grew up on a farm mm-hmm. and so was it the... In what year? I mean, how many years ago? You can do yeah. it. No, date. that's fine. I don't, I don't care. Yeah. Uh, I was born in 1984, um, grew up on a dairy farm until I was like eight years old, and then that went under. Uh, shortly thereafter, my parents got a divorce, and my dad went on to start doing the lumberjack stuff, which had been in the family because of one of his brothers, one of my uncles, for got a long it. time. And I actually moved around a lot with my mom in and around Pittsburgh until I was like sort of 15, and then moved back to upstate New York and kind of did the family thing up in upstate New York until about 20, and then I moved to California. Wow. So during this whole time of mm-hmm. farm and Pittsburgh and things like that, I mean, were you living the farm table life, or was it... Because back then it was not what it is now. Like, was it... Or were you just, were you just eating? Yeah, I, I mean... I think if you go into the town that I consider my home, Adam sure. Center, New York, like, you know, 400 families, one stoplight, no restaurants. Sure. There's no sense of, like, eating farm to table where people are really proud of it. But what that is, in reality, is there's a lot of Amish families near where sure. I grew up, and those Amish families will raise a pig, slaughter the pig, and then sell half of that pig to mm-hmm. a family like my dad, who's got a big deep freezer in his garage, and they'll basically make all the money back that it takes to raise that pig by selling it off in chunks and cutting it up themselves. So there's that life. You know, my dad's acreage now is 65, 70 acres surrounded by farm. We would literally go out in the backyard and pick corn for dinner and that kind right. of stuff. So it, you just don't talk about it in the same way. No, and it wasn't because it was just living. Right. And it That's wasn't exactly it wasn't right. an article. Yeah, and it, I grew up relatively poor like a lot of other people and so in that world it's mostly catch as catch can. You're not thinking about the highest quality ingredient and letting it rest for days and, you know. Yo, that is not resting. We can eat that now. <laughs> we are hungry. Yeah, that is exactly right. So we'll jump ahead. So 20 years. So this puts us, what, uh, 2004? You yep. moved to LA? Yep, 2004. And then I went to uh, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, which is up on the Central Coast. Okay. And then moved beautiful. to LA. Oh, it's Gorgeous. beautiful. I literally moved to California because I happened to go to San Luis Obispo uh, and visit a friend and was like, oh my God, I can be poor anywhere. I'm going to be poor here. Uh, the American dream. Like You yeah. can be poor. If you're going to be poor, at least be poor where it's beautiful. Yeah. There's a reason that Venice Beach has a lot of people just making a different life for themselves. Like being poor by the beach is where it's at. Yeah. Um... <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, where it's at is a relative term. Where it's like. at is a, is a where it's term. I, I don't think that's what Beck was singing about back right, in the day. Right, yeah. Um, so you're out there for college, mm-hmm. and that's also when you started getting into food writing. Yeah, you know, the, the sort of dirty secret, I think, for me and my position is that what I really, really like is uh, – is to know stuff. I really like mm-hmm. when people ask me for my opinion or ask me for facts that I know and I can give that to them. There's something very ego-driven about that, if I'm being honest, you know? So I remember being in college and, and sort of 
finding, in big, big air quotes, a Middle Eastern restaurant in San Luis Obispo that none of my friends had ever gone to before and thinking it was really good, telling them about it. They went and they really liked it. And I was like, oh, look at me. I'm like the center of this universe where everybody likes this thing. And like, <laughs> you sort of just end up chasing that for the rest of your life. Yeah, you become the guy, oh, you need a restaurant recommendation? Yeah, that's yeah. it. And so I have friends or friends of friends who will text me and be like, sorry to bother you about this. I'm sure you're busy. And it's like, you don't know this, but you're giving me exactly what yeah. I want. Like, and you're like, you're like, no, this is, it's like, uh, I guess I could send you, here's a list of 10 yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I guess I'll just be appropriately knowing more about this than anyone else. Like, yeah, that's all I want. So from moving from uh, in search of, and were these places like your standard college, like lots of food, low cost, but quality, or when did it start to sort of sink in that there could be something more than just your standard, like, oh, we're, we're, we're college kids and we want something good. Yeah, I moved to Los Angeles with a bunch of my friends and I was living in Culver City and I had a motorcycle because it was like... Nice. I mean, I moved to California with basically a backpack. And mm. so the sort of slow build up into money in a car and all that kind of stuff took time. So I moved to LA with a motorcycle and I had a day job up on Sunset Boulevard and I would drive from Culver and then I would go to my job and then over to the Upright City Super Gate in Hollywood and I yep. did stuff there for a long time. Stand up? Uh, like improv comedy and sketch writing. Okay. So I was on a show me your box, show me your wall. Show me your wall. It's like a very specific <laughs> wall. Everybody knows. I don't think you know what improv comedy is. No, no, it is uh, <laughs> banana in a doctor's office. Somebody says uh, 1940s Germany. Yeah, that's about right. God, that got real dark real fast. <laughs> well, never mind. You slip, I, on, you slip on the peel, make an off-color joke, and move on. There we go. Um, yeah. So you're doing that. So I would catch basically last call at a new taco place every single night mm. when I would get out late. And if you go to one, that's a sort of personal discovery. If you go to two, you've got something to compare it to. And if you go to three, you're on to something. Right. So that's the way that I lived for that first year and a half. Because you can eat, even now, really, really well at a taco truck for 4 to $7. I know. And it was food that I'd never had before. And I loved going to places and going, I don't even know how to pronounce this or what this is or how it's cooked or where it's from. And just, I started a Google map where I would put little points down and write down all the things I liked or didn't like. And eventually that grew to several hundred places and all of my friends started asking just for it and just pump one just hold on one second <laughs> so this is tw what 2010 yeah 2010 20 2009 2010 10 and for those who don't remember seven years ago finding these places was not like it was today correct because you could now you can be like blue corn tortilla lady LA-ish and it pops right. up and there's a Yelp page for a, a person with a grill on the street corner exactly how did you go about finding these places was it word of mouth did like they get to know you and they would tell you about their buddy was it a network like that or was it just completely like driving down the street pull over it started as purely driving down the street pull over <laughs> and where i had to traverse through to get back home in culver city i drive down pico boulevard sometimes and especially still on the weekends you know there's all these families that bring their carts out to make a little extra money there's trucks that have been parking there forever i mean this is like when <coughs> When the El Chato truck started first parking there, mm -hmm. which was pre-Kogi Barbecue, pre-Tacos Leo even, all these places that mm. we know now. Um, and so when I had lived in that whole neighborhood, I just would constantly be coming across new places that were just there to feed the community. And then eventually you start asking questions. One guy from one place points you to another place. You start looking at, you know, Chow Hound was obviously around. You could oh, find random stuff. Chow like Hound. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That used to be my go-to place when I would go to a city. Yeah. I would type in. It was actually very good. Before it got bad. Yes. It was really good. It got good. really bad. It, before it, it got really, really bad, it was really good. Yeah. It was actually like, people like, how did you find out about this place? I was like, oh, you know, you do your research, a.k.a. chowhound.com. Right, yeah. But so these taco places, 
Were they all just making their one dish? And so, like, the guy who told you about this one was like, I'll do a pastor, but this one does, you know, fish tacos, and that guy does chicken, this one did right. his barbacoa. Was it like that? Was it very specific? Or was it, because now it's like, we have eight meats. Right, right. I think it's always been, to a certain extent, we have eight meats. Um, some of those meats are better uh, than others because they have a specialty, whether they sure. know it or not. Um, but like a lot, barbecue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're going to do the ribs, but the ribs <laughs> might not be your thing. Yeah. So... I think for a lot of these places, they are a way for um, families to make a little bit of extra money. They're a way for a young guy with a strap for cash to work out some technique. And you just find places that are generalist because they're still learning. The people who are really, really specified, the Tacos Leos of the world, if you go and got something other than Al Pastor at Tacos Leo, people would be like, what are you doing here? Yeah. But that takes a ton of skill. And when they first landed in Los Angeles, they brought guys from Mexico who would work the trompo. And that's because... You needed to be that dedicated. Yeah. And um, over the years, because you wrote a book, Mm -hmm. right? You took all of the street walking and driving, things like that. Did you ever get in a car accident? Did you ever see one and, like, pull over and, like, almost... Uh, no, I had a guy pull a knife on me at a taco place once. Really? Yeah. Go on. Uh, he was very drunk. Um, was he working or was he... In no, work? no, he was like another customer. Okay. He was very drunk and he had misassumed that I was laughing with my friend but laughing about him. Uh, and uh, it just escalated very quickly because it was sort of late at night at a taco place in sure. a great part of town. And uh, words were exchanged and uh, the people working in the truck basically like threw my cash back at me and they were like, you better get that fuck out of here. Yeah. So I just like grabbed my cash out of the window is this guy like came back at us with a knife and we ran off. Wow. Yeah. But that's it. I've never, people always ask all the time too, and I wrote about this in my book a little bit, this idea of, of quote unquote roach coaches and whether or not you're going to get sick. You know, these are small independent businesses yeah. who in most cases, their only opportunity to get you to come in the first place is by word of mouth. And for them to make you sick is the worst possible scenario for them and their neighborhood. So it just doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen that way. I mean, it's, you probably get a sick as often as you do at normal restaurants. Yeah, 100%. Um, so you did this, you started doing this ten, uh, seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, how has it evolved in the good and the bad ways? It, it's massively different. You know, I, I was really, really fortunate to catch a wave that included Kogi Barbecue getting popular. The I, don't know, I don't know who that is. <laughs> I'm sure you've never <laughs> heard. But I used to... You know, Kogi, I downloaded Twitter for Kogi so that I could know where they were going to be at a particular intersection. Mm-hmm. And it used to be so popular and so I remember. Nouveau. From New York, I remember. Yeah. You would literally, you'd, they'd be like, okay, we're going to be at 8th and Normandy. And you would go to 8th and Normandy and you didn't know which corner they were actually oh going to park on. So you need four guys. So you'd show up. It was more than, it was like 100 people. And they'd pick, everyone would pick. No, you need four guys. Oh, yeah, yeah, you exactly. Go, yeah. As a group, you need four guys. But everyone would pick a corner and then you'd, you'd see the truck roll up and you'd be like, where's going to turn where's he going to turn and then you just would mob run through red lights like try to get into line as quickly as possible so like once that scene started it was the entire food movement changed and Roy Choi gets a lot of praise and he also gets a lot of shit from Angelinos and people outside of Los Angeles for the food that he makes and and the style in which he carries himself that dude straight up has massively changed the landscape of dining in Los Angeles I believe I once read haters gonna hate there we go well, I don't remember where I read it, it. There are a lot of, on a t-shirt on, on the boardwalk. Maybe uh, la.eater.com. Yeah, probably that. Um, uh, um, so you do the tacos, you do the mm-hmm. book, which is um, called Los Angeles Street Food, a history from tabaleros to taco trucks. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you've now cemented yourself, because now you've been here for seven seven years about, mm-hmm. five or six years at this point, yeah. um, you start thinking about like this food writing things, this is what you're going to do. 
Yeah, so I was able to start, quote unquote, sort of early on, um, writing weekly taco reviews for Serious Seats out of New York. Mm -hmm. And that was. Shout out to Ed. Shout out to Ed Levine, shout out to Kenji, shout out to Jamie Feldmar, the first person who literally ever paid me to write about food. God bless. Um, All of those people really, really. Uh, changed my life because they enabled me to take these dumb half opinions that I had as a guy who didn't know what he was talking about and put them out there. And I, I think I've always tried to approach it from, hey, I don't know enough about this, so let's learn together. Yeah. Instead of, I'm the authority figure, come let me tell you how to think. And that's, I think, a, a, a lean in that I still try to have for everything that I write for Eater and Beyond. But what at what point does it switch? Because you, you go to LA Weekly, mm-hmm. right? And, and you start doing these like more long form, big pieces. Mm-hmm. When did this start to switch going both as a writer, the stories you want to tell, and then pitching yourself as that guy who can tell those stories and say, hey, give me more resources, give me more money, give me more space um, to write these stories? You know what I think it is? Uh, what I was, was that moment? Yeah. I, I was a freelancer for years. And you, when you're a freelancer, you walk into a place and you ask to help them tell a story. Sure. And then you leave and they never remember your face or your name or anything ever again. They go, Michael. You go, no, no that's fine. not. That's not. Couldn't be farther. Couldn't be farther. <laughs> Daniel. Get a lot, I get a lot of Harley and I go, I'll take it. It's I'll close. Take it. That's not bad. Yeah. And so. You had the motorcycle? Yeah. I had the motorcycle until I got T-boned at an intersection by an old lady in front of a Tommy's burger. Uh, you're trying to take a left over to get the tacos. Uh. Didn't go well. Didn't go so well. what's the moment? So you walk so, in. Yeah, so, so I found it really frustrating as a freelancer because it's not easy to be around enough to let people give you those kind of resources like you're talking about. Yeah. And what really changed for me, and this is a dumb personal thing, but if you find me online, I'm always over, over, under. And the reason for that was because people would say, hey, where can I read your stuff? And I'd be like, okay, well, there's one thing on LA Weekly and there's one thing on Serious Seats and there was no cohesion. Sure. And it really took building a personal voice and then putting that voice on overoverunder.com, which felt like an easy name for everybody to remember, yeah. and getting business cards. So that when I walked in the door, you couldn't forget me because it was handing you something that had my name on it. So then I started getting to know people around the industry and those people wanted to talk to me because they liked my voice. And eventually it became a thing where other people started to say, hey, let's get Farley involved because he already kind of knows. Awesome. Well, we're take a quick break we're going to talk about your first couple of big stories and then your time right now uh, at Eater LA we have a live performance from the archives on Snacky Tunes on heritageradionetwork.org
We are back on Snacky Tunes with Farley Elliott, food writer, senior editor of Eater LA. And uh, we're talking about, uh, before we went to the musical break, your first break. Yeah. Um, and when you switch from writing um, short form on tacos to more uh, long form, in-depth research, man on the street, your your own girl Friday yeah. type of pieces. I think what it really, really takes, and any freelancer you'll talk to even today will tell you the same thing, it is really easy in the freelance game to chase small money. And so you can make 50 bucks here for one oh, yeah. story, 75 bucks, and you just end up trying to add up to making rent at the end of the month and nobody gets anywhere. The first time I ever felt really good about something that I had put the time and research into and got a little bit of money for, and it's sort of silly in retrospect, but it meant a lot to me at the time, was my first print story for LA Weekly where I just wrote about five great old school cheeseburger stands around the city. Places that maybe you knew about, maybe you didn't, maybe you'd forgotten about, but you know, there were photos, there were interviews, there Mm -hmm. was an in-depth history to why these places still mattered, and that's something I carry with me through a lot of my writing today. The It's always about getting to the why behind the food. Whether or not the food is interesting at a place is often completely besides the point. There's so much other stuff to talk about. So do you not see responsibility then in the way that, um, you know, let's say Jonathan Gold or Bruni or something like that is always like, this is, well, less Bruni because Bruni's, he'll he'll goose at you. But more Jonathan Gold who's now become like, he's an, like everything is pretty good. Everything is really good that I write about. I'm never going to send you bad stuff. Do you find it your role, especially with as a senior editor in L.A., um, to maybe just write about interesting stories versus good food? That's exactly right. So I'm not a food critic the way that like anybody would naturally think. Sure. I'm not anonymous. I don't go to a place, give it two stars, thumbs down. I almost never recommend specific dishes on our site unless we're doing you know maps of specific types of things. For the most part, my job is twofold. One, to uh, break and keep delivering restaurant news that nobody else gets, so mm-hmm. I lead that charge. And to also tell larger in-depth stories about people and places and why they matter. And so in neither one of those categories do I need to let you know whether or not the polenta is worth the 18 bucks. There's just more to do. Do you find that that scratches your itch more? Because if you talked about when you started your career as a food recommender, yeah. right? But it was good food. Yeah. But now it's more about like this is just an interesting story. The food may not be good. Or is at some level there's someone they're like, if you're going to talk about something, the food has to be at least mid mid high level bar. I mean, like you'd never write about a stu- place that has an interesting story that makes terrible food without saying the food here is terrible. I, I I do agree that there is a certain like low low bar for whether <laughs> or not the food is like good enough to actually send people there. Because I'm also smart enough to know that you know we reach millions of page views in a given month that people are going to go to these places, yeah. and so I don't want to send somebody to have a bad experience. But that being said. Uh, I can give you a very truncated version of a chili dog place from South L.A. that started in 1939 that was founded by this old white guy named Art Elkind. He claims to have invented the chili dog. Sure. He gets wrapped up in a lot of the racial politics of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And in 1992, the L.A. riots happened literally on the front door of that restaurant where they pull Reginald Denny out of a truck and they beat him in the middle of the intersection. And so you have so much history and culture that's wrapped up in this place that is still alive today. And whether or not the chili dog is any good has nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. So it's food, I mean, and this is part of um, where food has now moved into in its new modern role, which I think would happen in the last decade and a half, as, as, a, as a conduit, as a representative of pop culture, mm-hmm. where you used to go to songs and say, like, this song has a representative in history, and here's where it pl- had its place, here's where our place plays. Now, food 
has finally gotten its due respect as a place, as a representative for pop culture. 100%. Talking about restaurants is talking about taxes, about immigration, about produce, about politics, about race, about history, about all of that other stuff. You just happen to filter it through this lens of I sit and I have an experience at a restaurant. And the one thing I will say too, think about it like this. Every restaurant you go to has roughly the same rhythm. The waiter comes, they take your order, mm-hmm. they maybe drop off some water, you get drinks, you come back with your meal, they give you the dessert, they let you linger. The process is something we're all so comfortable and familiar with, and it's the same for me or the Sultan of Brunei at the table next to me. We're going to get basically the same service, where for a little bit of money, somebody can come and literally serve you, yeah. pull your chair out, give you a new piece of white linen to wipe your mouth with. Where else can you get that for a little bit of money in America? It's the greatest unifier that we have. It's really, really special in that way. Yes, except for sometimes that little bit of money can start creeping up to a lot of bit of money. Sure, but it depends on where you go. Sure. My father is a guy who once a month used to go to a Red Lobster 25 minutes away. He'd wear white jeans and a bolero tie, and he would sit in the same section with the same waiter because he knew that waiter. And when that waiter left, my dad stopped going to Red Lobster, and as far as I know, has never been back. It was Hmm. never about the food. It was always about what he got as an experience. Wow. So as you have seen food evolve over the year and as you've been part of it in L.A., um, and as you write your first big piece, there's actually one last piece before we move on to the eater thing that I want to write about. So when you talk about this like small story-chasing economy versus mm-hmm. these larger endeavors, what is the, pay, like the, the literal payout? of when you're going after these big stories and your time, like does it equal up to these smaller stories? It, it really depends on the outlet, on the type of story, on how you're presenting it. You know, the landscape for media is changing so much now. You'll make more money being in front of the camera than you will spending, you know, six, ten hours researching in a library somewhere for a story that's got a lot of teeth to it from yeah. a historical perspective. So it just depends. I'm a big advocate and push really hard for any of our freelancers at Eater to get paid a living wage and then some. But that's not easy. And if you think about the Los Angeles landscape... There's maybe six of us that are full-time food writers that aren't food critics. There's just not a lot of money to go around. And I'm very fortunate to be in the position that I'm in. So anything I can do to give back is like the least that I can do. Which is crazy because there are equal amount of restaurants here Mm -hmm. as New York. Yeah. And it's, I would argue, a hotter dining scene. A hotter dining scene. Hence why myself and many others have made the move. <laughs> that and Uber and, and true love. Um, so you are um, writing long form. Mm-hmm. You're at LA Weekly. How did the conversation start with Eater LA? And what were those early days like? Yeah, so the reason, and I, as far as I know this is true, the reason that I got approached to <laughs> What go, they told me. Yeah, well, what I think happened behind the scenes is that I, I got to know enough people and I started being around the scene enough that I started breaking news before Eater and Eater doesn't like that. I don't like it now in my role at Eater. Oh, and yeah. So they decided to bring me on board as a guy who could do that for Eater instead of for someone else. Do you remember where you scooped them? Yeah, the biggest first scoop that I had was about Cat and Fiddle closing and Ken Friedman and April Bloomfield taking it over. That was something that I heard through a friend and chased down all on my own, like piling through city filings and LLC reports and not knowing what I was doing, but like trying to really, really... Like you said, My Girl Friday like gets to the bottom of it, and uh, that was really the turning point to like meeting hired at Eater. Are you literally pounding the pavement like that? Every day. L- like investigative reporting? Every single day. Uh, today, I called a PR person and I said, 
hey, here is this restaurant that I know is coming to this space at this time. And she says, how? How do you know? And that's just like in the old days yeah. when I would recommend something and they would like it and then I would get that same juice. That's what I get now. So that's, I, that's your new juice. I try to do it every single day, 100%. So how to, take us through the process. Mm-hmm. Give, okay. us, give us uh, – can you give us something with no names? Uh, sure, yeah. I'll tell you this one that happened today. It's a, a prominent upscale restaurant that's opening up a second location in a nice hotel on the western side of town. And I heard about this because I got – to become friends with some construction guys who do projects large and small. And I literally went to their Christmas party and sat around and shook hands and wore a fucking blazer and drank the drinks and figured out through all these conversations what was happening when and where. And I continue to chase different leads from that same one night interaction at a cocktail party. Oh my God. Do you have like a Rolodex and like, uh, you know, in and out parking lot? Like that's in some basement with no cameras where like people are meeting you. Like, are you getting tips like that? Yeah, I get tips from tipsters. I get tips from people in the industry. I find a lot of stuff myself. You know, I live on the east side. If something happens in Silver Lake, Echo Park, Los Feliz, and I'm not the first one to get there, I'm legitimately mad. And I'm just egotistical enough to want to win. And so that really, really drives me. I write six stories a day, maybe 3,500 words a day. That's crazy. I'm a high volume guy and I want to be there first. I mean, what... Has it ever backfired? Have you ever chased a story and it, you thought you had it right, then you had to retract it? Because, you know, there is that cycle of, especially with the way um, media is these days, is like, be first. If you're not first, why post it? Right. You know, like, have you guys gotten burned like that? Uh, I will say that I've been sued a couple of times over stuff that I wrote that I continue to stand by. Um, I don't think as far as I know, I've ever written something that required a full retraction or ended up not being true. Usually my role is to get information and confirm that information before I go public with it. I can confirm it with the city. I can confirm it with the particular parties involved, whether it's the F&B side or the property side. I've got ways of figuring out when stuff is real or not. But as far as I know, I've never had to pull something all the way back. I mean, that's pretty lucky. Lucky in a sense, but I'm also trying to do my due diligence for sure. Yeah. I mean, lucky and good at your job. Um, So as you're chasing these stories and seeing the future of LA in many ways, um, where do you see the city going? I feel like the first wave of people recognizing LA is um, sort of coming to its end. Yeah. Like... It, the, the story and we've and and I go back to my interviews and I go are you still fucking asking that question about like is LA a great dining like right. we know it it's here like you know uh, we see the chefs getting recognized on all national levels that um, in the same breath as everyone else what's the next wave if we want to call it I don't know modern LA 2.0 well which is a terrible you can workshop yeah. it you workshop that <laughs> There's the I idea. Get, I got to get on stage tonight and workshop this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, what Just I... Just go back to Upright Citizen. Yeah, right? let him know I got a one-nighter coming. I, need, I, have, I have a type five. <laughs> Just stay with me. Bring out the notebook. But, I mean, where does it... I mean, where does, where does it go up and where do we start to see it fall back of being, like, there's just too many restaurants. There's, there's too many, like, concepts. Right. 
I think it, I think in a certain way we're at, we're on that plateau right now. Yeah. And we're looking out and there's a lot of beautiful stuff that's out there. But when you have the amount of properties and projects coming from other cities to mm -hmm. Los Angeles like we have, Tao Restaurant, highest grossing <laughs> restaurant in America, is opening tonight in Hollywood. <laughs> and those guys bought an entire city block in Hollywood. It's going to do well. And it's going to do bonkers. It's going to do bonkers. It's going to make so much money. It's going to make more money. It's like a 1% yeah. type of thing. 100%. But like if you want to talk in that sort of hipstery term about when something is over, the biggest restaurant group by volume of dollars coming to Los Angeles and buying a city block in Hollywood is kind of it. So what's really going to happen yeah. is we're going to find sustainable ways. And I think places like Kismet are doing this where they immediately open up. By the way, congratulations. For? They had the, for the uh, food and wine. Oh, yeah. That's congratulations to them. I thought to, you were talking about me. No, 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 no. At the moment, this podcast is not about me. I'm oh, so sorry, uninterested. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, hey, David, if you could just edit the part out where I talk about anything but Farley. Yeah, that would be, thank you, thank so, you much. so much. Um, no, big congratulations to them. Um, super well-deserved. That is a restaurant that opened doing 11 a.m. to 11 p.m. business every single day with a 20% service charge and a tip line because that's the new model for a 55-seat restaurant. Can I make an argument? Yeah. They came from New York. I absolutely agree. I think that that's something that New York has done really well yeah. for a while. Uh, we are learning that, and we are going to have to continue to learn that as we creep up towards $15 an hour minimum wage. And you're going to see a lot of restaurants that are changing the model by having a portion of their sales and service go to quick service. You're going to have people doing takeout and quick service restaurants as a standalone product so that they can help fund the big sit-down restaurants that they want to be doing. And so we really need to like distill down into the core values of who we are as diners and what we want to get presented with because all this other stuff is going to come and take those dining dollars away if we're not careful. I know, but isn't the choice just awesome? Even though it's a little scary. Absolutely. The choice is awesome. Yeah, I come at it from a, from a pure diner and someone who's fortunate enough to have a dining budget. I get to go out and spend other people's money to eat and that means that I eat at a lot of crazy cool places all the time. But... From the restaurateur's perspective, from the chef's perspective, it is scary, scary times. It is. Well, listen, I want to end on one one last note that I feel like I'd be remiss not to mention. You created the Tiny Hamsters Eating Tiny Burritos <laughs> video, which I, my wife and I absolutely love. How did you create that? I love that you love it. I, I, I do have to clarify. I am not the creator of it. You're I'm, not the creator I'm of sort it. of the star of the first episode. But you were the hamster. I was the hamster. <laughs> I consider myself... You heard me before. I, I consider myself the star. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I no. mean, I saw it on my, on my phone, and so because I saw it, I made it. Yeah, you see a photo of me, and you know. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. I, I have some friends who uh, are comedy friends who work in the advertising industry, and those guys had an idea that they pitched to a product, that product said no, and then they said, okay, let's make this anyway as sort of a calling card because yeah. they were back-end advertiser types. And they asked me if it was something that I thought I could pull off, and we made these little tiny, you know, three-quarter-inch burritos for this hamster and spent a day doing it. And then within, you know, 72 hours of it being up, Good Morning America wanted to fly me out for like a live tape segment. And my life was immediately different in the strangest way possible. Yes, it was. Uh, I think the whole world was different. Yeah, the, I think so. In the blink of a burrito. Well, Farley, uh, I can't thank you enough. LA.eater.com. Yeah. Uh, the book is... Uh, God, I lost myself. It's called Los Angeles Street Food, a history from Tamaleros to taco trucks. So it's all about how LA is the preeminent street food dining city in America and how we got to where we are. 
Awesome. Uh, Instagram? Instagram over over under, Twitter over over under, all that sort of stuff. Come find me. I'm always snapping them folks. Oh my <laughs> god. Okay. And on that note, uh, wow. On that note, um, we have another live performance from the archives. A live performance in studio coming up next here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network.org. You got a new leather jacket on. And so long, I can't see your eyes. Dance like strangers in the dark. It's been so long, I want to see your eyes. So be we become completely numb. We've lost ourselves inside this shell. In the night, you and me do what we like, do what we like. In the night, you and me go home together or leave separately. program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters, who acknowledge the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. 
Chef's Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chef's Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. Man, we have a packed show today. Packed show today. Um, Man, I love that fish sauce. We we should see if they have samples for you because it's the best. Do you like fish sauce? Are you vegetarian? Love fish sauce. You've never had it before, have you? No, but I kind (laughs) of dipped my pizza in this plate that you guys had by accident. Yeah. That's not fish sauce, though. All right. That's just a cream cream dressing sauce. So we have uh, Sam Austin and Cassandra all joining us. Welcome. Thank you. Hi. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks for joining us on this Sunday. So happy to be here. And a uh, big shout out to Andrew Oposo for uh, making this all happen. He, man, Andrew has made so many things happen for he's, me. He's a real life. mensch. He, real uh, mensch. Andrew of Jessica Six, uh, Her Nine Magic, Her Love Affair. And also, like, why we saw him last night, and the first thing he said to us was, he's like, you know what I'm super excited about? I'm like, what? He's like, Cassandra's going to be on the show tomorrow. And we're like, wow, that's the first. He's just thinking about you. Such a sweet guy. Um, and bass player extraordinary. Nice. Uh, he's uh, one of the best. And best bass face. Oh, yeah. Top five yeah. bass face. <laughs> just especially when uh, they are doing when they were doing the uh, like fully mixed Hercules Love Fair sets and he was doing the transitions and he was conducting with his face. Oh, my God. <laughs> Man, that was before my time. Was it? Yep. But, uh, you, but you've been in New York, though. I've been in New York. Andrew and I became very fast friends because of the the New York connections like when we found out that we were drinking at the same bars when we were 16 which ones like, um, well the Abbey Pub is yeah. Oh, yeah. a great place to go before you're 21 Blue that and Gold is good too yep <laughs> yeah Cherry Bar <laughs> yeah. on 6 yeah should... I was an uptown lady oh yeah oh. and you're famous up there right they are yeah, yeah they're still up there and they're still playing music yeah we had a house concert last night yeah tell me about the house concerts um, we've been doing them for 12 years now and have you missed any? I've missed a few. Just a few, though. Just a few. I try to be there whenever I can. Um, are they are there an annual thing during the wintertime? They're actually monthly, believe it or not. And we're having two this month. Um, are you only missed a few and they're monthly? They're monthly, yeah. Oh so what are they? Um, well, last night we had a harpist, a solo harpist. It was beautiful. And, and who's we? Uh, we is my family. <laughs> I, I am a member of a family of five, the Jenkins family. And my mom actually has a blog called the Jenkins House Concerts blog, and she posted Snacky Tunes today. Ooh. Yeah. Thanks, Mom. Very excited. It went out to the blog community. Oh. Big on the Uptown. <laughs> Thanks, Dear Mom. Mommy Bloggers. <laughs> yeah, Thank yeah. you so much. <laughs> yeah. Um, but basically, uh, it's a, a format of, we invite 65 people or so to our house. That's a comfortable number. Sometimes it gets bigger than that. And Where do you live? I live on the Upper West Side. Believe it or not, you wouldn't think that this apartment would fit 65 people, but we make it happen every month. And we invite a guest artist, usually a band, to come play two sets of music. There's always an intermission in between when people get wine and food. And usually my family will open in some way, shape, or form. And so last night my sister and I sang... Uh, Carter family song and my brother played a song that he wrote. Yep. <laughs> Naturally. Um, and next in a couple weeks we have Tony Trishka, the great banjo player, coming to play. It's a holiday themed show. Can I ask you a question? <laughs> of course. Partridge family or Brady Bunch? <laughs> We've gotten actually more um, what's it called? The Wes Anderson film. Uh, 
Trip. Royal Tannenbaum's? Royal t- we got that more than we did Partridge Family. That seems like a, a, a modern thing. And and what does does your York, does your fair. entire family play? We all play. My dad is a piano player. He, growing up, um, he made a living playing in all the hotels around New York. So the St. Regis, the Plaza, Carlisle, the, the, the Carlisle. He just played a gig at the Carlisle. He, he was did. very excited about he's it. He's one likes of those it there. like hotel piano players he's of like yesteryear. Exa- he's kind of a dying breed. Oh my God! What's his tip cup look like? It depends on who's coming in that night. Uh, yeah. it, you know, I, I actually don't know. I haven't seen it in a while. I imagine Goblet, but I don't think that's yeah. the like, <laughs> Or Vaz. Yeah. <laughs> I think it depends on the place. I think one of my fantasies as a child was being that type of piano player, but then I, you know, gave up. It's obviously. crazy. He knows so many songs. Do, does he have a bow tie that he's never actually tied, just that's draped around his neck? <laughs> <laughs> you know, he used to wear a tuxedo to work. And that became kind of uncool you, at a certain point. Can you point. let me know when he's playing next, and I can just go and like sit actually, there. we should yeah, just actually go. have him come in. I would love. Can that. he? Is there Do like you a guys port- have a grand piano? We don't, but <laughs> would he be willing to like sort some, figure something out? Absolutely, he's okay. got a he's got a travel. Can he just, just like if Austin. he could just play? If he could just riff in the background for an hour? Oh, that would be the best. Yeah, he riffs right. He riffs. My dad a, riffs. Come just on. one more story about your dad. Just one more question. I mean, I have actually a lot of questions. I hope he's listening right um, now. Does he have any of those, like, I was with, you know, Belinda Carlisle, like, really? Wrong the one. Rainbow Room. And no, I have the, the room, like, the rap pack. Oh, yeah. Like and Bobby the, and, and Frank. Oh, Bernadette, I, I I'm have sorry. stories. I don't know, we, I don't know how much time Peters. we have. We have time. We have well, time for this. When, yeah. <laughs> when I was a kid, uh, I remember going to Little Italy and my mom just knowing everybody down there. Just be like, hey, Patsy. And... Later on, I found out that they used to play at SPQR, which is now closed. May it rest in peace. Um, Pour a glass of vino for it. They were, yeah, they were the house band, and they would play. Um, occasionally, they would play. Uh, I'm air quoting private parties, mm-hmm. um, but it was really like a mafia hangout. Wow! Oh, and they were there. Gentlemen's club, speakeasy. <laughs> yeah, they they were. Um, they would play so that it was just it had the vibe of, of a party. And what was uh, touring with your family like growing up? Touring was really fun. We actually spent a lot of time in Maine, so I was excited Ooh. to hear some Maine stories today. Did you eat lobster up there? We ate tons of lobster. Uh, I wonder we, if they ever went to your grandparents' restaurant. Maybe that would be yeah. That would be some. Serious. That would blow my mind. I, yeah. I would have to lay down <laughs> if uh, you and your parents went to. Well, we'll have to go there at some point on our way up this summer. We go to Swan's Island every summer. And there's a tiny festival um, about halfway up the coast, and we would travel in a 1956 GMC bus to get there um, with lots of instruments in tow. Um, And at that point, it felt more like Beverly Hillbillies than it did Royal Tannenbaum's. (laughs) Well, that movie hadn't come out yet, so it's an unfair unfair comparison. Uh, but yeah, that we spent a lot of time traveling that way, and it's currently in upstate New York. Uh, the motor needs some work, but Dad's Dad's working on it. <laughs> um, it's working. Well, why don't we? <laughs> yeah. uh, why don't we get a song? Oh okay. my God! Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, we were thinking about playing one that we just wrote actually this month um, after listening to Snacky Tunes um, shortly after Lou Reed passed away on Daylight Savings Day. I believe in the perfect 
Awesome. Uh, that is really the best drum setup that we have seen here. Someone who really <laughs> understood the room that we were playing in. Uh, this is Austin Vaughn on the drums, by yeah. the way. What up, Austin? Say what's up. Hello, Snackatoon's audience. Let's, uh, and Cassandra's mom. <laughs> and Cassandra's mom's follow- blog follower. <laughs> yeah, and my dad. Uh, and your dad. Let's, um, how did the three of you meet? Yeah. Uh, well, actually, uh, I... Yeah, let's get Austin in on this. How about this? <laughs> this goes deep. Let's let Austin speak for a second. Sam and I uh, met probably before we were in high school, right? Because we were both from North Carolina. Yeah, 15. And Sam, well, too bad you didn't bring your clarinet, but when I met Sam, he was playing saxophone. Oh, I was... You promised clarinet, no clarinet. Yeah. I, know. I forgot it. No, <laughs> man. All right. It's a spacey Sunday. We but still have the, it's Sundays. Sure. It's Sunday. tough on Sundays. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. <laughs> but yeah, so we met each other when we were like young teenagers and then realized that we were both going to end up going to this school in North Carolina called North Carolina School of the Arts. Yeah. And we were in high school there like with college kids and we had the time of our lives. And then... And we were roommates. That's true. We were each other's first roommates, and now we live together now. Yeah. Uh, but so then when Sam moved to New York way before I did, and he was like, you definitely should move here. I was like, I don't want to do that. And then I did. And then I met Cassandra through a guy named Jonathan Rosen, who is brothers with a guy named Michael Rosen, who's in a band called Icewater. And I introduced Sam to Cassandra, or vice versa. That's true. Yeah. At the Manhattan Inn. It was at the Manhattan Inn. Who also has a piano player from time to yeah. time. They that do, was, like very much like my dad. I, yeah, has your dad, ever, has your dad ever been there? No, I really want to get him a gig there. Yeah. But yeah. It would make the story, it would like add another layer to the story <laughs> you just told. Let's add that layer. Yeah, let, let's add that layer. <laughs> dad, if you're listening, let's there's, add the layer. Yeah, there's, there's some really good music happening at the Manhattan Inn these yeah. days. And uh, shout out to Brooke, who uh, is yeah. one of the founders, like an b- old friend of ours who started yeah. Glassland Gallery. Cool. She's oh, cool. amazing. Yeah. And she just had a kid. Or she did have a kid. That baby was cute up yeah. on the Instagram. Yeah. Up. Uh, what? <laughs> I was giving Austin a little thumbs up. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. You know, that was I, a good. I, you, I used to have a radio show. I had a multiple radio shows in college. Oh, yeah. So I I, don't, I don't know how he's a radio mic, man. Uh, so now, when the three of you met, how did it kind of transform to you know what we're looking at <laughs> here? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, um, when did three become can I, one? Can I collaboration? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, uh, Austin introduced us at the Manhattan Inn. It was a Greg Saunier solo drums night, um, and we were all there hanging out, appreciating the music. And um, what is solo drums? Solo, solo. Austin, you want to show us what solo drums is? Uh, it's when you play alone. When you play alone. Oh, so like literally, the, it's my, really exciting. Yeah. The drummer in my band, his name is Max El Mario, and he works with at the Manhattan Inn he's a bartender and he curates because he's a drummer he curates this night I think it's usually on Sundays and it's all like solo drummers and they come in and and it's yeah wait is it solo drummers together? no no by themselves a series it's a series yeah Um, but shortly thereafter we we I went to go see Celestial Shore Sam's band at Glasslands and we were all hanging out outside and Austin looked at the two of us and he said you know you guys, you could, you should collaborate. I think that'd be good. And off, and Sam's response was, "Oh, there will be collaboration," <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with full confidence. And here we are today. Wow! Wow! 
That is a bold. That's a bold. It was bold. I loved that. That's a a good line. That was before we were dating. Yep. Oh, (laughs) Oh, you guys are dating? Yeah. Let's add that layer. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) you need you need lines like that. So there's a lot of collaboration going. There's a (laughs) lot. Yeah. Sam and I have been dating ever since, actually. And was it that line? Yep. That line kind of did it for me. Really? Yeah. Like firework. And not to mention that uh, I was also going to see Sam play guitar and and. That did it for me, we, too. We hey, hey note, note to listeners. Dudes and bands get girls. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> on, <laughs> here on Snacky either, either pick Go up a guitar. Go get that guitar right now. Yeah, pick up a chef's knife. Yeah. Uh, get some girls. He's Why a good we, cook, too. Oh, do you? What, what do you guys do? cook together? Um, well, Austin and Sam have a really great dish that they made for me early on. Okay, well. No, that's overused. Let's talk about another dish. No, no, no. no whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> What's this dish? Yeah. Well, actually, see, I hesitate because we used it. The, my band did an interview with Brooklyn Magazine, and they do this thing where you're you're given a budget of twenty dollars, and and you have to cook, and they take pictures and interview you while you're doing it. Well, look, here's the deal: no have one's listening to this? this show, so you can talk no, about no, no. that. <laughs> well, everyone. Anyway, if you are show. listening, it's a cool it's a cool thing What's in the, the Brooklyn Magazine. It's nachos, but it's it's kale quinoa nachos and chicken and chicken. Well, you can optional chicken oh, thing for, for the veg. Yeah, so you just like have a layer of you make your own corn tortilla <laughs> nachos. And then you put quinoa with red, or red quinoa with black beans, garlic, um, and then uh, you kind of throw that on top of the nachos, and then put kale, and then put it in the oven, and the kale gets crispy, and the nachos are crispy, and it's like this kale mm. sandwich thing. And then you put sriracha on it. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Get sriracha while you can. It's good. You guys all know about that, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Crazy. It's, oh, wait. crazy. Is it closed down, or is it just closed down temporarily? I think it's temporary. I think they're, it's temporary. They're still selling it super there's, hard at the fair. There's right. too much money to be made in Sriracha for it to close down. Fully. I got I got so much money in Sriracha stock right yeah. now that I'm, I'm nervous. Why don't we hear another song? Okay. Okay. What are you guys going to play? What do you want to do? Well, I was going to say, if, if we were going to talk about one of my favorite recipes, we call it rabbit food, and it's some, some kind of like muesli creation. Um, it's the best. It's really delicious and healthy. But we're going to play a song called Rabbit um, that we wrote this summer. It was uh, my first collaboration with Sam. (laughs) And Austin Austin plays drum on our recording of it. Okay. Ready? Are you there, Austin? Yeah. Okay, ready? It's also an adaptation of a Wallace Stevens poem. Shadow covers the sun 
That was amazing. Amazing. Thank you. Um, Thank you, so much. you have so many different types of drumsticks and accoutrement. Like it's amazing. You have to see him play solo. I was gonna say, and you hold your drumstick in a way that makes me think that I would love to see you really go to town on a drum set. You should come. You should come see me play sometime. I will absolutely come see you play. You wanna you wanna hear me pimp all the times I'm playing this week? Yeah. Yeah. What's today? Well, can we talk about Tuesday night's show? That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. Talk well, because Sam is on that one, too. Yeah. So, Well, maybe Sam... I don't really know oh, yeah. what's up with that, but I'm super excited to be doing it, so go ahead, Sam. Okay. My friend, our friend Luke Temple of uh, Luke Temple and Here We Go Magic, is, he's been booking a series at Union Pool that's kind of based around improv, improv, improvising, creating music, 
spontaneously. Spontaneous composition. Yes, that that would be the instantaneous way. composition. Sure. So Luke uh, Luke booked Austin. Uh, Austin's going to be playing with a legend, uh, Daniel Carter, um, a legend of the New York imp- improvisational scene, um, going back to the fifties, sixties. Mm, I mean, he no. was like born in the forty-five or something. All right, like. so so he, he was in New York. Got started at six. He came, yeah, he but came he in the seventies. He got he, once he got his hand on those really? pots and pans. Yeah. He really did. You know, so. he actually was living in North Carolina as a child. Well, that, and that's, Ohio. That makes sense. You guys can talk about your favorite restaurants. At any rate, <laughs> so I, yeah, Austin's I'm playing, playing a with duo him. with Daniel Carter, and I'm playing. That's I'll be actually playing clarinet on this show with um, Jason. As long as you remember it, right? Yes, <laughs> remember it. With Jason Nazari, who's another great drummer uh, of this band, Little Women, and um, uh, some other great friends. Are there any women in Little Women? No, of course not. No, course but not. have you seen Have you seen this band? No. Are they all it, really big dudes? They're yeah. pre- they're all pretty big. They're not yeah. big. They're not big. Well, they're from Brooklyn. I mean, they're yeah. not like right, your average big. skinny tall guy in a band. Little Women is the Little Women is the best band in Brooklyn. Oh. <laughs> Whoa. I wow. second that opinion. Oh, but I guess Darius lives in Queens. They're the best <laughs> band in New York. Ooh. Ooh. Drop the mic. Yeah. <laughs> That's a big... Uh, These are expensive know. mics you to drop. You are on Snacky too. Yeah. All uh, and, five of you. And for the three of you, when are you playing next? Um, I, I think our next show is probably going to be uh, at the Jenkins House concert. Oh, really? I'm going to see if Austin's available. I haven't asked him we yet. We were supposed to play tomorrow night, but it got canceled. It got canceled. Uh, Friends and Lovers is a new venue, but they're they're getting their permit straightened out. Where but, is that? Um, it's in Crown Heights, actually. Uh, so hopefully they'll be up and running soon. But on the 21st, uh, we might be doing a house show and then probably into the new year. And uh, what's next for you guys after shows? After shows, well, we just recorded the song that we played first. Um, and I would like to, I'm working on writing songs for a full length album I'm hoping to record and have done by the spring and summer. Ooh. And is it just you writing or is there outside influence? Um, I write a lot of my own songs. Sam and I have been writing together a lot. Um, and I love also taking on the songs of other friends. There are a couple songs on my EP were written by friends of mine, and I love reinterpreting other people's music. So uh, we'll see what happens when I put it all down on tape. And uh, final question before we hear one more song. How do people get invited to your house jams? Um, you can check out my mom's blog. <laughs> my mom had a blog long before I ever did. First wave. Um, did your mom teach you how to blog? <laughs> she <laughs> she kind of did, actually. Oh, my God, that's amazing. Yeah. Mom, I can't post this photo. <laughs> Just rolls her eyes. <laughs> yeah. Ugh, come here. She's so high tech. She's got her iPad. Um, oh, same with our mom. She always says she doesn't want to ever be le- feel left behind. Cool. Oh, I yeah. hope she she's listening today, right? Yeah, yeah. Did you call her today? Hi, mom. I did. So, so did I. Hey, mom. Hey, dad. Um. So why don't you give people the nuts and bolts where they can find um, you, follow you, uh, get the EP? Well, you can check out my my Bandcamp has uh two of the songs that we're playing today. And that's just Cassandra Jenkins Bandcamp and Facebook and CassandraJenkins.com. I've got my last record came out on vinyl. I printed it in Brooklyn. I pressed it in Brooklyn. And uh, did you press it with? With yeah. uh, a company that is unfortunately no longer. Oh, it's man. called EKS. And it's, it's fortunate that they, they are no longer. <laughs> they they really? owe us some yes. money. <laughs> um, but I've, I've got 100 vinyls left. Ooh. So How many did you have? Hotcakes. Only 300. Okay. That's still pretty good. <laughs> hey, Brandon's saying 101. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So 
Um, you can find those online, and you can get in touch with me on Facebook. Uh, well, great. Well, uh, everyone, thanks for listening <laughs> to Snacky Tunes. Uh, I think we have one more show this one year. One more. Uh, show. Who's the food guest next week? I have to. <laughs> uh, we have Rad Dads as a band next week. So uh, listen oh, up. Yeah. And if you're around, come out to the Refinery29 pop-up store, 201 Mulberry Street. Yeah, self promo, baby. Weird. It's not weird. A little weird. Um, all right. Well, um, I also want to thank uh, Emery, Saltwater Farm, <laughs> and uh, Paul and Kong and Rob. Um, oh, and shout out to Glassery, who makes the best rabbit dish in all of New York. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, uh, it's. Well, I mean, we were we were doubters. We were doubters, we were and doubters. and I told Sarah last night. I said, "Listen, this is like the fourth time I've been here. I've never ordered the rabbit dish. If you like rabbit." <laughs> Go. They say it's for two. That's ridiculous. Like maybe it's two of the Little Women, but like <laughs> it's it's like a four person dish. It's amazing. Have you had it? I have. It's amazing. The charred pieces taste like octopus. It's crazy. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, so hop on over there. All right, and uh, be back with one more episode. And uh, thanks for seeing. And what's the last song you're gonna? take us out with well i like how much we're talking about animals on this show today we had lobster talk we had fish talk we had rabbit talk and this is a song called the bird okay live on snacky tunes
turns its head and looks at me with one eye as you enter the listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.